so so I've been I've been really thinking really hard trying to come up with a, a good shark joke. Like I've been hammering my head so hard trying to trying to figure one out, and I just <sighs> I don't know. You know, it's not plans that I have the same response to these jokes every time. That's just truly how I feel about them. Whenever you just hear a loud sigh. Hey, maybe you should close your jaws. Get, get if it. you if you sing the baby shark thing at any point today, I'm going to slap you. Baby shark, do 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 do. Baby shark, do do. Ow. Okay. <clears throat> hey everyone, Devin Boker here. And Richard. And you're listening to The Wildlife, a podcast from two brothers that explores nature's untold stories, wild secrets, and the people who studied them. Before we get into it, a big shout out to our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the wildlife. Our other half of the symbiotic relationship that is the wildlife. So the biggest of thank yous to <clears throat> Big Deep Breath because the list is getting longer. Andrea Lloyd, Chris Trankel, Angela Seibert, Bridges Fitzgerald, Christina Boker, Maria Hancocks, Matt Capel, Megan Gariani, Mike Henry, Vikram Baligi, Whitney Vandiver, Zach Sednick, Gabriel Blinsky Kimia, Kim Jolay, Karen Bergman, Terry Peterson, and Charlie Rodriguez. We couldn't do this without you. Originally, the plan for this week was uh, as if you follow us on Twitter, you're probably aware because there was a lot of excitement about it. Uh, the episode was going to be on hyenas. This is not that episode, as you can probably tell by the title. I mean, if you've gotten this far, you, you already know that. We decided to change plans at the last minute and shift the episode to next week, in part because, well, if you're listening to this, you're probably one of the people who knows that it is Shark Week. But also because Shark Week, while incredibly popular, is an absolute <laughs> show. Like, what does Mike Tyson have to do with sharks? And what is this whole, like, rumble in the reef? Like, good grief. We want to help with a better approach. But before I explain what we mean by that, let's introduce today's guest. I found today's guest on Twitter. Um, we followed each other mutually for, for a bit now, and at one point I had put out a tweet that said, what should we do an episode on? And she said, sharks are always great. And I immediately sent her a DM on Twitter, like, you know, so professionally. I was like, oh my gosh, do you want to come on the show? And she was like, yes. And and the rest is history. She's an interdisciplinary marine conservation biologist who studies shark and ray biology, ecology, fisheries, and conservation. Her research interests also include marine ecosystems, human wildlife conflict, and wildlife tourism. Dr. Catherine McDonald is one of the co-founders and the director of the field school an interdisciplinary marine science training and education program, which we, we're going to put a link in the episode notes, of course, and we will share it on our social media. It is it is an absolute dream. Like if I can ever do anything with the field school, I think I would be, I'd be content dying. Okay, maybe not, but like I'd be, I'd be really, really ecstatic. She's also a lecturer in marine conservation biology at the University of, of Miami's Rosenthal School for Marine and Atmospheric Science. We talk sharks, obviously, mermaid purses, bad movies, sharkless oceans, the truth about our interactions with them, finning, and so much more. Before we get started, an acknowledgement. Yes, sharks are mitied. 
They are diverse. Um, if you do an episode on, let's say, I don't know, polar bears, we're really only talking about one thing, but sharks, there's over 500 species. And if you want to look at all of chondrocytes, those are cartilaginous fish, that's over a thousand species of sharks, rays, and skates. The smallest shark is a dwarf lantern shark. It's less than eight inches. You could hold it in your hand. And then you have really big ones like the whale shark, which is 60 feet long, a six-story shark. And everywhere in between that, in terms of how they eat, whether or not they have teeth, how deep in the ocean they live, how shallow, if they live in a group-ish kind of life, if they live largely isolated, how long they live, there's an incredible amount of diversity. And so we want to acknowledge right off the bat that, you know, Shark Week for its issues does, you know, try to highlight some variance. And that's partially why it's an annual thing, other than the fact that it brings in lots of advertiser dollars and attention. Um, we are trying to condense a very complex, complicated group of animals into an hour long show. So we're going to do our best. Some of it will be broad, but, uh, it'll be worth your while. So hop into the tub and use a shampoo to spike your hair like a dorsal fin as we dive deep into the world of sharks. Down in the deeps of the ocean lies a man-eating serial killer in infested waters, creeping closer and closer to shore to rip your legs apart limb by limb. They can smell blood from 50 miles away, and they are coming. What you've just heard is probably exactly what you're used to hearing when it comes to sharks. We mentioned we wanted to help with a better approach. Part of that is in contrasting messaging, a, a counter-narrative of sorts. Uh, part of that is in acknowledging the problematic culture and modality of Shark Week. Here's what we mean. When Discovery Channel released the Shark Week schedule lineup for 2020, every single mentioned scientist was a white man. Shark Fest from National Geographic, while not fully white men, still featured white men as 75% of their named experts. And this relates back to something that we discussed with Chelsea Connor in part two of uh, our episode series with her. And it's, it's, it's something we're hoping to help curtail at the wildlife. When asked, both networks shifted the blame onto a lack of diversity and representation in marine scientists. But that's just not true. It's because they aren't looking. Maybe at a previous time in history, uh, that, that lack of representation or, or the way that it is being uh, portrayed on TV networks would be more accurate to how it actually looked. But how about the fact that 60% of graduate students in shark science are women? What about organizations like minorities in shark science? Now, a lot of that information comes from actually uh, two different things. One, an op-ed from today's guest that we're going to read an excerpt from and, and discuss at the tail end of the episode, um, but also from something that was just published in Forbes titled, Inaccurate and Biased Global Media Coverage is a Threat to Sustainable Shark Conservation. It was written by Melissa Cristina Marquez, who you can find on Twitter at MCMSharksXX. She's a shark scientist. It was also written by David Schiffman, Why Sharks Matter, and Dr. Catherine McDonald. Other people 
do exist in this career field. They just aren't the ones shown. Now, part of this that we can acknowledge is for these TV series, they, they, are, they are looking for people who are kind of out there or they're, or they're looking for people who have the best imaging, the best technology, the best of the best of the best. And that stuff requires money and seniority and power. And so that's actually more a testament to the larger culture within science that needs to shift. But this, this is not an accurate representation. But of course, the wildlife is never just about wildlife. It's about people too, our connections with nature and the people who study the natural world. So let's get to know Dr. Catherine McDonald. All right. Well, uh, have you always been interested in science? I've always been interested in sharks and sort of through sharks science. Sure. I was the little kid who was super, super into the ocean and kind of carried around my school library's shark related books till they fell apart. And mm -hmm. um, my great, great grandparents lived in coastal South Carolina. So uh, I got to see wetland and ocean ecosystems up close there and it made a big impact on me. I'd be outside getting dirty and I would feel like I want to know more. I want to know why yeah. I want to understand what I'm seeing. Um, and for me, that curiosity was the pathway into science, which is really just kind of a formal way of being curious. So what advice would you give uh, like a younger you, you know, someone looking to get into the field, um, you know, whether it's to study sharks specifically or just into science? So the number one thing I would say is that there's not just one path and there's not just one answer and you're not screwing it up. Um, because I have so many students, you know, almost 100% of the students that I talk to tell me that they feel like they're behind their peers, right? And mm. it's just yeah. statistically not possible <laughs> for yeah. everyone to be behind their peers. Um, yeah. They're isn't one route to a career that fulfills you and that you find rewarding and that you're grateful to do every day. I have done tons of unrelated jobs that wound up becoming related because what I do is a function of who I am and the things I've done in the past have shaped the person that I became. So have some adventures, try some stuff, see what lands, uh, see what draws you and mm -hmm know that it's okay you know I, I think students are really occupied with the idea of you know fitting themselves into this particular box that they think that their teachers or mentors uh oh, yeah. you know are looking for but yeah. the goal of your career should be to build a box that fits you mm -hmm. rather than to fit yourself into a box that somebody else offers you so yeah. your task isn't isn't to be a particular person it's to figure out who you are Of course, with sharks, you know, they get kind of a bad rap sometimes. And, uh, you know, there's really not that many instances. And, you know, say we got like orca whales where people love those and they're also predators. So where do you think that uh, really comes from? I think there, you know, the the sort of pat answer is, is jaws, right? Um, mm -hmm. But I think that that's just one piece of it. I think we've known so much less about sharks historically. You know, if you think about whales and dolphins, time at the surface is built into their lives. They yeah. come up to breathe. Um, 
for sharks, we don't see them nearly as much. We, we aren't privy to as much of their lives. And so we have had a lot harder time anthropomorphizing them and imagining that they are like us. Yeah. So yeah. we see the social lives of whales and dolphins and we, you know, we relate to them in a mm -hmm. way that we mostly don't with sharks, even as research is increasingly showing that sharks have complex lives. A uh, great study out of uh, Bimini Bahamas showed that juvenile lemon sharks have friends, right? There are other little mm -hmm. lemon sharks they like. There are different little lemon sharks they don't <laughs> like so much uh, that they want to spend their time with or not, and that those relationships remain fairly stable over time. But because we can't often tell sharks apart very effectively, because especially as they get larger, we don't see them very often. Mm -hmm. We just don't know enough to recognize the ways in which we have things in common. M movies that feature sharks ripping people apart don't help either. I don't oh, yeah. think. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. We were we were just talking about um, some different pop culture movies and stuff just before this, um, and we're thinking, trying to list off. Like I'm just thinking of you know uh, animals or, or or positive movie portrayals of whales and things. Um, you know, there's Free Willy and there's there's so many. And then you look at and then even like dolphins, like there's some you know like that. But then with sharks, it's like every one of them, with the exception of like maybe a couple animated movies, are all just like super violent or over the top and megalodons and all that kind of stuff. It's just uh, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, honestly. I'm grateful when sharks are portrayed in a negative light that's so extreme that it's obviously ridiculous. Yeah. That's like that's like the best case scenario as a shark scientist is Sharknado. Like Sharknado. <laughs> because nobody asks me at public talks whether they should actually be worried about Sharknados, uh, which is a relief because I do field those kinds of questions about other activities you know people oh people gosh. are worried when they're diving they are worried when they're swimming they want to know how to yeah. avoid those risks yeah you know sort of on that same note just before this my wife was um um i think she's still a bit mad at me about something that happened in galveston uh about yeah. a month ago we we very clearly uh, the waves were were tremendous it was kind of a result of the tropical storm that was hitting florida and um very very vividly could make out a shark out in kind of one of the waves before it crested and I got really excited and for whatever reason my instinct was run into the water which is probably kind of dumb but I, I got excited and my wife was really mad at me about it and so her question that she thought I should ask probably to teach me a lesson was um if you see a shark in the water when you're at the beach like should you be concerned should you leave the water it depends, but I'm I'm not coming down on your wife's team here, at least not fully. Um, as as somebody who will 100% chase a shark at a beach, uh, their first and constant instinct is probably going to be to try to move away from you. Um, so I'm not worried about your safety in that setting. Uh, on the other hand, if you're in murky water, if you uh, have bait fish around you in the water, if um, you have some reason to be concerned or think that you can't see uh, where that animal's going or what it's doing, it never hurts to do things that minimize your interactions with wild animals. Uh, which isn't to say that I think anything would happen to you Sure. Anyway, sure. 
but you know i always tell my students who are learning how to work with sharks hands-on like if you make a stupid boneheaded choice and get hurt the headline is not going to be idiot does something dumb gets what she deserves <laughs> the headline yeah. is going to be monster shark bites conservation student who's just trying yep, to help exactly yep. yeah that's how it plays out across the board i mean that's even you know bears and wolves uh, like pretty much everything that's a whole um, reason to be careful so my advice or, would be know, not to chase it but it is yeah exactly <laughs> my advice is not to chase it but it's more to protect the shark than to protect you Sure, sure. So you, you kind of mentioned right at the beginning, I think maybe before we started recording and stuff about how, you know, frequently people just want to lump sharks into sharks. And there's actually an extraordinary amount of diversity in terms of appearance and size and, and, and where they live in the water column. And I mean, sharks are among some of the oldest, not just evolutionarily, but like genuinely individual sharks that like are some of the oldest living organisms on the planet. Um, can you speak a little bit to to some of that diversity, some of the range, yeah. and how many species there are? Very happily. So right now, actually, sharks are carrying the title of oldest living vertebrate. I don't know if we'll keep it, um, but uh, the Greenland shark is currently yeah. estimated to live to up to 500. Wow. Uh, so oh that that is the oldest living vertebrate reaching sexual maturity at about age 150. So that's oh. going to be a rough puberty. Um, <laughs> there are more than 500 species of shark. If you include their relatives, the skates, the rays, uh, the mm -hmm. chimera, you're talking about more than a thousand individual species. So wow. uh, it's a huge diversity of size, of habitat, of behavior. Um, if you ask people to list shark species, you're almost every time going to get great white bull shark, <laughs> hammerhead tiger shark, right? The, yep. the sharks that are featured on Shark Week. But mm -hmm. if you take the average, the average shark is about three feet long. Really? Um, and most of them don't occupy that apex predator role. The vast majority oh. of them are what we call mesopredators. Um, mm -hmm. So animals that eat consumers that are below them in the food chain, but are also sure. eaten by apex predators who are above them. Do, do all sharks have that, um, I mean, it, I, they, yes, they range really greatly in appearance, but do they all have that same kind of characteristic, like the really prominent dorsal fin, um, and, and sharp teeth and like, you know, it, would you be able to look at it and be like, oh, okay, that's a shark, maybe small, but a shark. Yes and no. Uh, they all have elements of their body plan, at least somewhat in common. I mean, assuming we're talking specifically about sharks because you know what a ray mm -hmm. looks like and it's not yeah. that sharky. Um, but the, their morphology can vary a lot. You know, you can learn a lot about how a shark lives based on where its mouth is, what its eyes look like. You know, big eyes usually mean it relies on vision uh, or sometimes mean it lives in a low light environment where it needs big eyes to try to take in a maximum amount of light. Uh, small mm -hmm. eyes usually mean vision's not such a big component of its hunting. Uh, a really elongated upper lobe of the tail usually points you to sharks that spend significant amounts of time on the bottom, right? Because that longer upper lobe helps them generate lift to get up off the yeah. bottom when they want to. Uh, so you can draw exciting, interesting conclusions about how a shark lives just by looking at it and applying some 
basic uh, ideas about how their morphology, the building of their body, uh, mm -hmm. relates to how they live. Um, but in general, yeah, sharks sharks came up with a plan that worked really well, mm -hmm. and they stuck with it. You can look at you know three hundred and fifty million year old fossilized sharks, and they look like sharks. I mean, like weird sharks, but like sharks. So <laughs> sharks sharks have got it figured out. People will say that they're ancient, like that means that they're primitive or undeveloped. Uh, but yeah. what that really means is that in evolution, you don't see changes that aren't necessary, right? If something's yeah. working, it doesn't alter. So yes, so so some of them are quite sharky. Like there's, of course, a lot of sharks that look very much like what you would expect a shark to look like, but there are ones that don't at all, like the frilled shark, which doesn't have a dorsal fin. Its back tail looks kind of flowy, like a, like a skirt. Its teeth, I don't even know how to describe those. Nudibranchs. They, yeah, they do. They look like nudibranchs. Like lots and lots of nudibranchs. It's got like a poisonous, okay, uh, venomous <laughs> snake-shaped head. Yeah, like it's, it's, it's odd. And of course, there's a Greenland shark, which is just kind of ghostly. Not like the ghost shark, though, which is super ghostly. The goblin shark. Ugly as hell. It's one of my favorites, though, because it's got like... So if you see an alien... And you know, like the alien with like the little like retractable mouth, like the little tiny mouth that comes out. It's kind of like that, except so a goblin shark's got a big pointy nose like a goblin. And its mouth is like flat in its body, but it can like shoot its mouth out to bite something and then like bring it back in. It's really creepy. It's just, why? Why nature? There's a swell shark. They're biofluorescent green. Deep sea shark. That's pretty cool. Which is which is really really that's cool. That's really pretty. There's the uh, zebra shark that's spotted like a leopard, which just makes me horribly angry. The cookie cutter shark. It looks like uh, it looks like a giraffe, like a raisin fied sample, though. I don't, well, I don't think that's what they normally look like. Well, is it? I guess so. If you know SpongeBob, what? Are they selling chocolate? Like that character, it looks a little bit like that. It's it's brown, it's small, it's really long. Its this... teeth are it it looks like a crown or like the top of a picket fence. I don't I don't really know how to explain that at all. Or it looks like a saw, I guess, but like they don't go down all the way. It's like a it's like imagine a saw, but in the shape of a circle. And it's got lips like, who's the lead singer of Aerosmith? That guy. Steve Tyler. Steve Tyler. Thank you. So clearly sharks can be incredibly varied in appearance and size and habitat. Well, I mean, they're in the ocean. They're not like on land or anything like that. Although there are land sharks, kind of. It's complicated. Anyway, clearly they're diverse. But what makes a shark a shark? Like what is the unifying thing that is sharky? We'll get to that right after the break. Hi there from the Hikopper's crew. Hikopper's mission is to strengthen the body, feed the mind, and calm the soul by providing outdoor events and programming that connect people to each other, to themselves, and to nature. 
From women's hiking groups to kids' camps and community events for all, we invite you to visit our website at www.hikehoppers.org for details on the many ways we work to help create happier, healthier communities. See you on the trails! Did you know that you can listen to your favorite shows ad-free with Stitcher Premium? Like, seriously, like Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, My Favorite Murder, Science Rules with Bill Nye, like all of those ad-free with Stitcher Premium for $4.99 a month if you use promo code THEWILDLIFE at checkout. Um, we started a book club, and so we've been doing one book a month, started doing two a month, um, usually one about some kind of social justice, racial justice issue, um, semi-related to environmental stuff. Um, and then one science and nature book that we kind of just do simultaneously. And so I wonder if you have any recommendations for books for people to read. Yeah. Um, so if you're interested in the importance of predators to healthy ecosystems, uh, one of my favorites that I love recommending to students is a book called Where the Wild Things Were by hmm. William Stoltzenberg. Uh, it's, it's a very easy read, but it explains a lot of basic ecological principles. And if what you're looking for is some shark-related action from really excellent shark scientists, uh, there's a new book called Shark Biology and Conservation coming out hmm. at the end of August, which is by Dan Abel and Dean Grubbs, who are two of my uh, science heroes. Uh, so I would strongly recommend picking that one up when it comes out in August. Sure. Cool. And if you are kind of science-minded and you want to get into conservation issues around your favorite species of shark, I would recommend shorter reading. Um, take a look at the species assessment from the IUCN mm -hmm. Red List uh, of the particular species that you're interested in. Usually it's experts reviewing the literature on the species in question and saying what they know about it and its conservation status. So it's a sure. great way to get an overview of an individual species if you're curious. And now, it is time for Animal Sound of the Week. Animal Sound of the Week is meant to provide hints to the upcoming episode like next week's episode and we've already referenced like four or five times now what next week's episode is so honestly it shouldn't be all that hard and um this is one where i really did try to do the sound myself but every time i did it i ended up sounding more like joaquin phoenix's version of the joker than anything so i'm gonna actually insert the real sound here okay if you don't already know, and if that didn't solidify it for you, submit your guesses on Twitter at the Wildlife Pod or emailing us at hello at the wildlife.blog. Get it right, and you'll be maybe possibly randomly chosen to, uh, you know, receive a prize. Okay, so just before the break, we were talking about really weird sharks, oddball sharks like the goblin shark. And then wondering, what makes a shark sharky? Like, what is the sharky thing about a shark? You know, um, you, you've already spoken to to quite a bit of it in terms of, you know, the, not all being apex predators, some being mesopredators, uh, and the difference in appearances and things like that. Are there any other, like, 
generalizations, I, I know that's kind of a tricky thing to do, but generalizations that you can make about their biology um, uh, in terms of, you know, body plan or, you know, their, their, the skin structure or anything like that? So sharks all, as far as I know, uh, have dermal denticles, which are uh, a modified tooth-like scale. Uh, but the shape of those denticles varies a lot. Uh, sure. In bottom-dwelling sharks, you tend to see them be a bit more rounded. They're like a little bit more like armoring design mm. to help avoid injury. Um, in ram-ventilating sharks, sharks that have to swim to breathe and, and never stop swimming, uh, they tend to be really streamlined and hydrodynamic. So those scales help reduce drag um, to minimize the energy that it takes the shark to keep moving through the water and to keep breathing. Uh, so you, you see similarities, but you also see differences. One of the amazing things about such an ancient group of animals is that if you think about evolution as the process of solving problems, right? Like how, how do you find a mate? How do you find food? How yeah. do you avoid injury? Um, they've had so much time to come up with a lot of different solutions. Uh, and so within the grouping of sharks, there are a lot of different strategies that solve all these sorts of problems. And that's part of what to me makes them so much fun to study. Um, with, with one of the things that I've heard before, and um, I vaguely remember it from an ichthyology course, but not super in depth, what was that some, I don't know if all, but some sharks um, do, do have live birth, which is kind of an interesting characteristic. Is that the case for all? No. Uh, so sharks have really diverse reproductive strategies, actually. We've got uh, a significant portion of species that straight up lay eggs, right? Hmm. Um, if you've ever heard of or seen mermaids' purses, uh, mm -hmm. though that's what those often are. They're either either shark or skate and ray eggs. So that mermaid purse thing she mentioned, um, if any mermaids are carrying that as an actual purse, I mean, maybe rethink your fashion sense just just a tad. It'd be but, like a disgusting looking fanny pack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they're kind of like okay. So if you've ever seen like those black beetles with like the large pincer things on the front that kind of hook out on both sides like the curved hooks that come off the front um or you know like loki's horns it's kind of like a little leathery casing that that holds the eggs it's this, it's an egg case with one embryo each and um it's it's uh it's got those horn like things on either end so it is like a little tiny bag but with like two beetle horns coming off and they're they're black oh. or brown and that's that's probably the best way uh you have a good chunk of them they lay eggs but rather than laying them outside of the body where those eggs would be vulnerable to predators they lay eggs inside the oviduct where they develop and then they eventually give birth to live young huh. but those offspring uh while they're inside their mother they're not connected to her right? They're developing as though huh. they're just an egg, um, but she's providing them with a stable environment in which to do that without much risk of predation. Like she uh, and we see, that, <laughs> we see that in, in quite a few species too. And then there are some, uh, the lemon shark is a famous example, who have that placental connection to their mother that's similar to mammals. Um, and actually mm. baby lemon sharks come out with belly buttons although they're not on their stomach they're right <laughs> on their throat 
Oh, um, weird. Yeah. And so they actually have that placental connection and um, their mothers have to actually uh, provide what are called sarcophagi inside to avoid their pups tangling their umbilical cords in the womb. Huh. That's a cool word for it. Yeah. <laughs> how does that, um, so how does, how does, how does that work? Uh, especially, okay. We've, we've, especially in these last few episodes or, or interviews, I should say, um, have spent a rather long amount of time talking about some of the reproductive stuff, um, because it's just so weird. The animals are just so weird. Uh, they have so many varied things and in the ocean, I imagine you've got some pretty unique strategies for actually being able to reproduce, um, because that just seems logistically difficult um, and physically difficult. Um, so how how does that work with sharks? So um, sh- male sharks have two claspers, uh, and okay. those will sometimes recently, notably in a Shark Week advertisement, be sort of treated as though they're penises, but they're actually mm. modified pelvic fins that they use for internal sperm delivery that calcify. Oh, uh, and so each of those claspers, they're, they're a little bit misnamed, right? They're not actually used for grabbing uh, in okay. any way. Uh, a male shark will use his mouth, which is his sort of most useful organ to manipulate, mm-hmm. uh, to hold a female. And then depending on which side uh, is closer to her, he'll insert a clasper, which actually has a species specific clasper spur on the end to kind of anchor him in the female and then deliver sperm. Uh, It's not a lengthy process, right? Uh, He uses, um, basically he uses water to force sperm into the female's oviduct, which she can then uh, use or store. Females in at least some species can hold sperm for significant lengths of time before becoming pregnant. Wow. Is it true that, and I'm not sure uh, how many species this would actually be across, but uh, I've heard that like a, a shark in the womb might like absorb or cannibalize another fetus? Yeah, so we only know of this in a couple of species, although it wouldn't shock me if there are more. Uh, the most famous is the sand tiger. Uh, but we talked about where uh, you're developing in the womb, but you're not connected to your mother. So you're developing using energy from your yolk sac, right? Your, your, your mother has given you this battery to use to, to develop as an embryo. When you've exhausted that in some species, uh, the mother will start producing unfertilized eggs for those offspring to eat. Uh, in some species, uh, particularly raised, they'll produce something called interuterine milk, which isn't really that similar to mammalian milk, but is nutrient rich and can help offspring continue to develop. Um, and in sand tigers, uh, female sharks have paired uteri. Um, however many started out developing in there, she's only giving birth to one from each uterus, and it's the one that has eaten all of its siblings. And uh, with your uh, saying with the scales earlier, isn't it uh, right that you know some of them they they look like they'd be really smooth, but they kind of like feel maybe like sandpaper? Yes, absolutely. If you if you run your hand down a shark from 
from the head towards the tail, it will feel quite mm -hmm. smooth. And if you go tail to head, it will feel rough like sandpaper. Um, hmm. Shark scientists sometimes get a bit torn up by shark scales. Uh, we call it shark Whoa. burn. Whoa. Now, how, so how often do uh, shark attacks like, actually occur? So uh, the, the kind of authority on this is the international shark attack file. And I am sure that there are issues of underreporting because the world is a big place. Everybody yeah. doesn't have equivalent access to the internet. Mm -hmm. There are definitely incidents that occur that are not reported, but mm -hmm. our best accounting suggests uh, that there are fewer than 100 unprovoked shark bites a year. Uh, in 2019, it was 64. And wow. that of those, uh, on average, about five of them are fatal. Okay. So it's, so it's definitely a lot less than what you would maybe believe from uh, movies, <laughs> where you have just like a very homicidal yeah. shark taking out an entire... <laughs> what's What's funny is uh, that statistic was actually so low that it made me want to look up just something just completely random to see if it was actually higher. And the first result uh, says vending machines kill four times as many people per year as sharks. Oh, yeah. Wow. Vending <laughs> machines points. are a good one. You're in more danger from your own toaster uh, than from a shark. <laughs> you are at greater risk of being killed by a coconut falling on you than by a we shark. We need some movies on these. We need a, we yeah, need a Jaws I... style movie about coconuts and then I'm not massacred. sure that would be a huge seller. Yeah, prob probably not. Maybe <laughs> like an indie college movie festival or something like that. But otherwise, probably not. Um, uh, there was something else I was gonna gonna ask, but I think I think we'll save that for a little bit. Um, because because you often hear this term "shark infested waters," and it's a term that's made me laugh for a really long time because doesn't make a whole lot of sense because if they're in the water, I mean, they live, it's kind of like saying, Oh, like, oh man, this human infested neighborhood. Like, isn't it human infested um, waters? Yeah. And, and so there's, there's kind of a, a lot of components to this, but lately I have been seeing a lot about an increasing presence of sharks, um, you know, closer to the coast, especially in like the Carolinas. There's been talk about that in Galveston, which my assumption would is that that would lead to more conflicts, whether, whether that's actually more, uh, you know, encounters or attacks or anything from sharks or, you know, people demonizing sharks and then intentionally harming them in some way. Um, what, first off, is it accurate that they're actually shifting like that? Or, or is that kind of just like a misnomer or also what, what, what do people then do in terms of coexistence? So uh, I, have, I have two answers to just the first part of your question, and then we'll get sure. to coexistence. Um, one of them is that I think some of the perception of increasing shark presence has to do more with increasing human observation than an actual mm. change in shark behavior. So sure. um, oh, that makes sense. we made news here in Miami uh, a month or so ago when our beaches reopened because they sent out news helicopters to film, you know, the beaches reopening. Yeah. And those news helicopters saw sharks near shore. Um, but this beach is pretty near where I live and I have been there often and sharks are there often. Right. So it became yeah. a news story, at least locally that like, 
you know, beaches are reopening, but like the sharks are already there waiting. Um, when, you know, to me, I was like, yeah, the sharks are there. It's Tuesday. They're there all the time. Like <laughs> this is their habitat. So one of the, one of the tricks is teasing out the difference between like, they weren't there and we weren't paying attention. Uh, and increasing availability of stuff like drones means that these locations are getting recorded in that way much more than yeah. they ever have before. Yeah, it's kind of like people um, camera phones suggesting that there's more uh, more mosquitoes and things this summer. And it's like, well, it might just be that there's more people. You like you're inside. There's no mosquitoes now. Everyone's outside because there's nothing to do. And you get bit by a lot of mosquitoes. And you're like, wow, it's infested with mosquitoes out here. They were just lying in wait, um, you know, where they live. Well, in the same way that we would talk about an increase in shark attacks mm -hmm. without necessarily recognizing that the way that humans use the ocean have changed really massively, right? Yeah. So uh, people spend more time at the beach than ever before. Uh, mm -hmm. Wetsuit technology means that even in very cold waters, people spend more time in the water than they have in the past. Um, yeah. And so there's just increased potential for interaction that doesn't have anything to do with sharks at all. Um, sure. So I, I haven't seen strong evidence that says they're coming closer to beaches than they have in the past. Although I do think, you know, sharks are always going to go where the opportunities are. So mm -hmm. uh, if, if there are changes that are related to water temperature are related to prey availability, um, sharks yeah. will move with those things. Sure. I mean, that makes sense. And then the other the other half there is that in some cases, uh, you know, Massachusetts is a great example right now. We're starting to see recovery of seal and great white populations off Massachusetts. And so great white populations there are healthier now than they have been in recent decades. And people are perceiving this as a, a change that's a problem in at least some places because mm -hmm. they're there if there are more great whites in the water there's more risk to swimmers um but it's not it's not a change away from what's natural right it's a recovery towards what's natural the question is just whether we're allowed we're going to allow them to have a healthy natural population size in that right. location because we are or aren't willing to accept the consequences of living close to healthy populations with large sharks now, one of the reasons that I reached out to Dr. Catherine McDonald for this episode was a Twitter thread that she had about shark finning. You may have heard of it before. It's kind of, at least the way that it's typically portrayed. Um, there's lots of videos on the internet. You've probably seen commercials where the fins are cut off of a shark to be harvested for the purpose of eating or other purposes. And then the body of the shark is just dropped back in while it's still alive. And essentially they drown because they have to technically be moving to really absorb oxygen. So that, that, well, I'll let her explain. Uh, yeah, of course. Um, so for a little bit of brief background, uh, it's, it's really difficult to know how many sharks are caught annually, right? We, we rely on a variety of government reporting mechanisms, but we also know that illegal, unregulated, uh, and unreported fishing is a significant problem in global fisheries. So uh, the most widely accepted estimates are between 80 and 100 million sharks a year uh, are, are caught 
uh, full stop. Some of those are finned, some of them are not. Uh, but that number is just an estimate. So the, the point that I tried to make in that thread is that uh, finning is the most talked about threat to sharks, but it is far from the only threat to sharks, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Sh sharks encounter a variety of threats. Uh, the trade in shark meat is rising in uh, importance in fisheries mm -hmm. globally. Uh, that's of concern. Um, sharks are also threatened by the things that threaten marine environments more broadly. So pollution, habitat loss, uh, overfishing of other yeah. species that sharks rely on. All of those shape sharks' survival and their ability to thrive. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times I think the debate about finning gets distilled down in ways that let Americans point the finger at China right, yeah. and say the problem sharks have is Chinese people. Mm -hmm. And the reality, of course, is firstly that uh, we're involved in the global shark trade. We are the seventh largest uh, lander of sharks globally. Uh, mm -hmm. Most of our sharks are reasonably well managed, um, but we absolutely fish for sharks. We do not fin sharks, it's not legal. Uh, in the U.S., shark fisheries are required to land sharks with their fins naturally attached. Um, so if you see petitions calling for banning shark finning in the U.S., don't waste your time signing it. That's been <laughs> true for a decade. Sure. Uh, we really like environmental problems that let us outsource responsibility, right? Yeah. Um, so in the same way that we we like being able to say you shouldn't be catching sharks to people in other countries who rely on that for their livelihood and we like to say you shouldn't be eating sharks uh, mm -hmm. to folks who do rely on them for food or who use them for cultural purposes you know shark fin soup is a culturally important meal mm -hmm. uh, and demand for shark fins have fallen a lot but it's not my place to to tell China and Chinese culture, what they should or shouldn't do. And in fact, there are plenty of Chinese activists who are at the forefront of changing demand. Uh, but the idea that the solution here is white American scientists showing up and saying, you're bad, you're the problem, stop what you're doing, uh, and that that's going to get us good results is kind of comical on its face. Mm -hmm. But you can think about what we're we're doing as a sort of moral offloading of responsibility yeah um so americans want for instance to be able to go get cheap fast food right mm -hmm. we like the convenience we like the taste we want to be able to do it um americans also don't want to talk about conditions for animals in slaughterhouses they don't want to talk mm -hmm. about conditions for workers in slaughterhouses. They they want to disconnect the part of the production that is fundamentally environmentally and morally problematic from the mm -hmm. choices that they're making. But of course, those things are never actually disconnected. We've right. just built a system that lets us pretend that they are. Right. I don't know. I think that's a, a 
that's well said. It's it's sort of um reminds me a little bit. We did we did something on uh, orangutans relatively recently, and um, it came up it came up in a multitude of ways. But but I mean, so often you know in that particular instance, uh, you know it's oh these these palm oil using companies um, and and Indonesians who are cutting down the rainforest to plant palm oil and and nowhere in that is an acknowledgement that there's an incredibly high international demand for palm oil which is why and where is a lot of that demand coming from well it's the united states and uh you know if it wasn't for that demand and for that you know wealth of control um you know situations wouldn't necessarily look that way um and, and so yes if there's i can see a lot of different similarities um I always like to say, you know, whether it's in nature or in human nature, that nothing really exists in isolation. And, you know, there's so much of what's going on in the natural, like everything in the natural world is related to what we're doing. Um, you know, I just, I was just even talking to uh, this dung beetle expert this morning who, who was talking about how there's this book that he read um, about how interesting, uh, you know, even the ground beneath our feet has such an influence on socio-political policies. You know, if there's coal beneath your feet, just the just the geographic history of where you are, you know, has such an influence on culture and the environment and what's going to happen and so much. And it's, uh, I just, I think the shark finning thing is interesting because um, if people do know what it is and if they've seen videos and things, it stands out, sure, you know, and, and it, it's kind of a hard thing to watch. And I think a lot of people see that and the gut reaction is just, what, <laughs> why is this happening? And very quick to just look for somebody to blame. Um, other processes like uh, decline in populations because fishing out prey species, it's not as eye-catching. It's not as visceral. So it's kind of, oh, well, I mean, that's not really you know, shark finning is what we need to go after. Um, and, and not so much all these other things. And I just really liked your, um, your perspective on it. Yeah. Well, I mean, and like one of the best things that we could do here, uh, in Miami to improve the marine environment would be to really push for better waste treatment and waste management, um, to try to eliminate the use of septic tanks here where we have a very high water table. Uh, to try to make sure that coastal waters are cleaner so that coastal environments can be healthier. Uh, it's, it's one of the most powerful things that we could do. But people who care about sharks are not going to Miami-Dade Water and Sewer Department uh, <laughs> public meetings and saying, clean water and a healthy marine environment are priorities for me. Mm -hmm. they're, they're signing petitions that don't ask anything more of them than for them to be morally offended by choices that someone else is making. Uh, mm -hmm. And especially when there's not an equality of freedom to make choices, you know, most people clearing rainforest to plant palm oil, most people fishing for sharks in small scale subsistence fisheries are not doing it because they could do anything and that's what they've chosen. They're doing mm -hmm. it because that's the opportunity that's in front of them in terms of feeding their families and sending their kids to school and taking yeah. care of the people who matter to them. So, yeah. you know, they're doing that so that your cookies baked in palm oil are cheaper and more widely available. Yeah. 
yeah. who, who there bears the moral responsibility? Like really, <laughs> who should feel right. bad about that? Right. One thing I, I mean, on that, on that subject of, of decline, I mean, I, I might be wrong, but I thought my understanding is that shark populations as a whole are, are kind of experiencing a lot of shifts in the downward direction. Um, how does, how does climate interplay with that? That's a great question that I think, you know, in some ways, climate change is almost the ultimate experiment, right? We're still finding out how changes that we've made will affect the future. Uh, so there are studies that show shifts in shark habitat use, right? That for some species, mm -hmm. nurseries are moving north, uh, that the, the kind of furthest north extent of their habitat for some species is likely moving north. Uh, we have sharks that rely on subtropical waters in the winter here, like black tips that make long range migrations up to the mid-Atlantic states uh, during the summertime. Uh, how climate change will shape how far they go and, and the marine systems that, that they rely on as part of that, we don't really know yet. Um, there's some evidence that ocean acidification may affect their ability to form their dermal denticles. Um, but that's still kind of a, a relatively new and emerging question. That that's one that I haven't even have haven't really thought of at all. Yeah, any I mean any calcifying organism like shellfish or corals uh, are is going to be negatively affected by increased acidification. But there are animals that uh, rely on calcification within their bodies as sort of a subset of their well-being and livelihood that may also be affected. We don't know a lot about how it's going to affect fish or sharks in terms of their sense of smell, in terms of their prey detection, uh, in terms of their biological processes. So it's the kind of thing where, you know, some folks are doing exciting experiments uh, to try to answer those questions, uh, but we're performing an unprecedented global natural experiment at the same time. I know this is, I mean, this is kind of a hard thing to answer because I mean oceans cover so much of, of the planet um, and sharks are really I mean everywhere I mean even down in some of these very cold regions that you wouldn't expect because I think a lot of people just see sharks as tropical um, you know swimming in pirate shipwrecks and in, in, in the Caribbean and that kind of thing um, but what would a what would a sharkless ocean look like it's difficult to say um... I, I don't want to find out is the short answer, but um, in general, you can think of ecosystems as including a huge number of interlocking pieces, some of which are microscopic, uh, all the way up to the biggest apex predators. Um, any piece that you take out affects that system, right? But functional redundancy within that system or organisms that occupy similar niches and can expand uh, to fill the niche of one that's absent um, often can compensate for damage and loss. One fish species that is a, an herbivore can be more active and maybe reproduce more effectively if you lose another species that's an herbivore. Uh, especially at that apex level, um, sharks don't necessarily have other organisms that occupy that same niche. Um, but at the mesopredatory level, they may. Large predatory fish and, and three-foot sharks uh, often eat similar things. Um, 
but we've fished out so many of our large predatory fish. You know, the, the number of large snapper and grouper that are present here in South Florida are a tiny shadow of their massive populations 100 years ago. So we're, we're reaching the end of the line in some places for oceans in terms of the changes that the system can bear without collapsing. There's a quote from Aldo Leopold that I really love uh, ab about the idea of intelligent tinkering, right? If you want to mess with an incredibly complex interrelated system, at the very minimum, you better keep all the pieces because you don't understand what they do. Um, and so an ocean without sharks really worries me, but honestly, so does an ocean without lobsters. So does an ocean without seagrasses. Um, for us to kind of say, well, this is vital, but like we could pass on this part of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As, as scientists, one of the most amazing humbling parts of the work is understanding how much you don't know. Uh, yeah. And so I have no clue what an ocean that truly didn't contain sharks would look like, but I hope I never have to find out. If, if you had um, one, one overall take home that you, that you want people to know about sharks or, or their existence or conservation, what would that be? More than anything else, you know, I, there's not many people who are like more fired up about sharks than I am. And so I kind of, I want to hit you with like some cool pithy shark fact and I maybe will, but honestly, the thing <laughs> that I really want people to believe is that what they do matters and that they can make a difference. That's true. You know, even if you live in a landlocked state, even if uh, you're never going to see a shark in person, even if, Sharks aren't the thing that you care about, but salamanders are. Mm -hmm. uh, the choices that we make do matter. And a lot of times, you know, it feels like the systems and the processes that are driving environmental destruct destruction and extinctions are so powerful that, like, what can I do? Uh, but if everybody feels that way, then nothing happens. And the other thing I guess that I would want to say is like, think about your impact in terms of events, in terms of behavior, in terms of like actual real life changes. Um, because I see lots of, of students pour themselves into the idea of raising awareness, right? And the thing that at the end of the day makes me feel good is when I can say, I did a beach cleanup today and I collected 200 pounds of trash and those are not in the ocean anymore and they won't be. Like what, what can you actually do? Not what can you talk about? Yeah, no, that's, that's a, that's a very good point. Um, I, cause I, I think it's easy to talk about stuff. Ultimately it's, it's the easy thing when you, when you feel at a loss and you don't really know what to do, but you have a lot of information that you're just kind of sitting on and reeling about in your head. Um, if you can get it out there, you know, it, it, it provides you, um, a sense of comfort for a little bit. Like, Oh, I did something. I, I let that out a little bit. I was able to vent. And someone heard me, and and so I passed the buck. Um, but if there's no action behind that, well, I mean, what are you really doing? Sure, people might not, yeah. you know, they might know more. But if that person isn't doing anything because they know more, nothing really happened. So, 
And even as you say, like, well, but what can I do? Mm-hmm. Almost everybody lives somewhat near a river. Yeah. Rivers flow to the ocean. If you go take that plastic bag out of the river now, that's one less plastic bag that I'm fishing out of the ocean later. You know, I, uh, so my, my wife and my kids and I, we've been going on these walks pretty much for months now. Um, at night we walk along Mississippi and recently we started picking up all the trash that we see on the way. And my, my toddler is, is has been kind of confused about it and doesn't really like, why do you want to get out of the river? But he loves sharks. So I think what I'm going to start saying is we're protecting sharks <laughs> and see, see if that'll motivate him to grab some stuff. But yeah. Uh, it's 100% and, true. Yeah. It's kind of one of those things too. I, I hear frequently about like the Mississippi where, you know, people in Minnesota are very upset about, you know, like the dead zones and pollution in the Gulf of Mexico, but then don't take much time to realize we're on the Mississippi. Um, and it flows through actually the origin of the river is in Minnesota. And if it's going to start anywhere with the clean, a clean Mississippi, it's here. And so rather than passing the buck and saying it's people down South who are, you know, causing the pollution in the Gulf, well, maybe let's, you know, start, start North and, and work our way down a little bit. Well, and just recognizing, you know, it's, it's all really intimately connected. Yeah. So whatever the thing is you care about, the good environmentally friendly action that you take matters to that thing that you care about. Well, um, I think it's time to, uh, to try our, our quick game of trivia. Oh boy. Okay. So we've been talking to you about sharks for, for quite a bit. And, uh, uh so we want to see how much you know about sharks and pop culture, specifically more so related to children's pop culture. Oh no. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry in advance listener who will get this prize if I win. Um, we're going to start with uh, the much beloved by some, but much hated by most baby shark song that my son plays okay. on repeat. How, how many, how many views does that video have on YouTube? Is it 5.9 billion, 500,000 or 10 million? Oh no. <laughs> um, Big. You know what? I'm I'm gonna go big or go home. Uh, let's go with the billion. It is. It's five point nine billion. Billion with a B. Five point nine. That is a lot of views, and it, I I'm assuming about half of those sad. are my sons. So zero of them are from me. Just <laughs> if anyone was wondering, it's oh. not it's not a it's not a very good time. Your cat looks very much like my cat. It, it does. I was almost confused for a second. I was like, how did he get there? <laughs> <laughs> um, right through the screen yeah um <laughs> this next one i have to use a voice so it's just a bit okay <laughs> what <laughs> what movie is this line spoken by jack black from where he played a shark i'm sebastian the whale washing dolphin is it finding nemo shark tale or jaws oh okay great <laughs> Uh, we're playing at my ability level. I'm pretty sure it's Shark Tale. It is Shark Tale. Yes. I've I've never seen it, but I process of eliminated that. <laughs> um, the, the last one. Who who does a better Australian? You? I think you do a better Australian. Oh. Yeah, you do. Uh, what animated movie is this line from? 
Fish offerings, not food. Is that Finding Nemo, Shark Tale, or Jaws? Finding Nemo. It is definitely Finding Nemo. Bonus point, and that means bonus prize, if you know the name of the character who said it. It starts with a B. Oh, uh, Bruce. Yes, it's Bruce. Very good. Awesome. You got three out of three. Very good. Excellent. Very you're you're very welcome, Mr. Person. <laughs> Before we go, there's something important that we need to talk about. And it's the dark side of all of this. The the dark side of shark science, the the dark side of how sharks are portrayed. We've discussed that a little bit, but um in serendipitous timing, today's guest had an op-ed published in Scientific American on August 10th, entitled, The Dark Side of Being a Female Shark Researcher. Of course, we'll put the link in the episode notes. At this point, a bit of a warning. The op-ed, as well as an excerpt that we're going to read, may be triggering or difficult to listen to for reasons you can probably guess by the article's title. You might want to fast forward a few minutes. In the op-ed, Dr. Catherine McDonald begins by detailing a story where uh, she was with someone who was a hero of her at a time, a shark researcher, and they were they were doing something, filming something for a TV series. And uh, one of the producers had her ask her hero why he became a shark scientist. And gesturing to her, he said, well, because of the beautiful green-eyed assistance. That is cringy. And just uncomfortable. And why Why would you do that? Catherine McDonald writes, Becoming a scientist should not require developing the grit to continually endure misogyny, discrimination, harassment, assault, or bullying. But from the earliest experiences, women scientists learn that if they complain, they'll be described as difficult or a problem. If they're heartbroken by how they're treated compared to their male peers, they'll be told they're too emotional and need to grow a thicker skin. If they leave the field... The problem was with them. They weren't tough enough to hack it out in shark science. And that story, the, the one that Dr. Catherine McDonald shared, that's just one of many and, and hardly the worst. I mean, there's stories of women being referred to as fresh meat, stories of women who are, are on uh, isolated shipping vessels out on research trips with men and uh, how they are treated, how they are gestured to, and worse. And then there's the issues with intersectionality. Women of color, they face even more. Another excerpt from the op-ed says, misogynistic culture and science can be terribly dark. In a 2013 global survey across scientific disciplines, 64% of respondents reported being subjected to sexual harassment during fieldwork and 20% to sexual assault. The vast majority had these experiences as trainees or early in their careers. She shares a list from her personal career, ones from a professional setting that she would describe as work. And um, even with the content warning at the top, because of the audience of the show, I don't feel comfortable sharing some of the details. But again, you're more than welcome to, uh, to read. She says she wishes that she was the only one, but she's not. She wants to be sure that young women know that if it's happened to them, they are far from alone. On top of the dark side of shark science, really all science, 
there are mass discrepancies in how we see experts talk about the animals as compared to, to media and how the public talk about them. Both this and next week's animals deal with this in incredibly major ways. Everybody knows, what, mako sharks, tiger sharks, great white shark, lemon, nurse, and of course the whale shark. But there was a study that was actually just uh, just published that Dr. Catherine McDonald was on the research team for, and it looked at newspapers and found that 1.1% of articles mentioned any of the 10 shark species that are listed as critically endangered on the IUCN red list. And that's exactly what we're talking about here when we when we say that you know we want to talk about it from a different angle and it seems like everyone knows about sharks but like there is a lot of information that does need to be put out there about them. Yeah, I mean some of these series, these TV series they, you know, they they pitch a good message and it's it's that more education and more exposure is going to be better for the conservation of these species. But if if 99 or I guess 98.9% of the sharks that are being referred to are not the ones that are at risk of, of, of uh, endangerment. How can that be the case? So throw in convoluted issues like shark finning and those discrepancies further even more, which can be detrimental to real science-based conservation. Not to mention that the Western world's ideas about what animals should be protected how, who nature belongs to, and who has the right to alter it, have deeply racist and colonial roots. So, opening message here. <laughs> One you could say is, um, check your sources. So if you're watching Shark Week, there is valuable information there. But also, watch it with skepticism. Watch these specials, watch who's being spoken to, watch how men are referred to their, their titles as compared to the women guests watch and look for where ulterior motives might be at stake might be at play and check the primary sources now more than ever it is incredibly easy to interact with and really get to know the scientist at work twitter is amazing and i cannot tell you how many people in fact Probably a majority of our 30 or so interviews that we've done over the last few weeks have been people that we have found on Twitter. And you can interact with them like normal people because they are normal people. They just happen to do science. So thank you, Dr. Catherine McDonald, for um, doing this, for, for being on the show. Absolutely mega thanks. Megalo thanks. Megalodon thanks. I don't know. Thank you so much for doing this. We learned a lot. We hope that you did too. You can follow Dr. Catherine McDonald on Twitter at Dr. So Dr. Underscore Catmac. C A T M A C. She has a wonderful feed, constantly enlightening, insightful stuff, just chock full of, of facts and, and insight. You've got to follow her. You've got to check it out. Thank you again to the people who support us every month, our, our members. Again, we really could not do this without you. And, and all these next steps that we're trying to take in terms of establishing grants and uh, programs that provide gear and binoculars uh, to, to young birders and, and all those other things that you can learn more about at patreon.com slash the wildlife. Um, that it's it's a hard that's hard work. It's hard to get those things off the ground. It, it requires a lot of uh, 
support and attention and and funding and so those of you who contribute every month i i don't know where we would be without you so thank you so tune in next week for a very very special episode with a very special guest that will have you well i don't want to give too much away I'm Devin Boker, and this was The Wildlife.